Words matter. They can change the course of your day. Just listen. You are brave. You are stronger than you think. You have value, worth, and dignity. Don't you feel better already? Welcome to Speak Healing Words, the podcast. Join author and board-certified life coach Janelle Reardon as she opens a very important conversation about the power of our words. Hello and welcome to Speak Healing Words, the podcast. I am Janelle and I'm going to be your host for the next few moments of this engaging conversation about the nine practices of my newest book, Overcoming Hurtful Words, Rewrite Your Own Story. This week, we move into practice four, praying through and staying with the process. We are going to begin today's session by reading the beautiful narrative found in 1 Samuel 1. I like this. I like to call this a tale of two hearts. And I've really wanted to read through these 28 verses with you today in our Lexio Divina fashion right at the beginning of our time together, because it will really help frame the work and the practice that this praying through and staying with the process entails. So here we go. In true Lexio Divina fashion, put yourself in the story. Try to look around the story as if you were there being transported in a time machine And consider which point of view in the story is speaking to you. 1 Samuel 1. There was a certain man from Ramatham, a Zephite, from the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, son of Jeroham, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zeph, an Ephraimite. He had two wives. One was called Hannah and the other Penaniah. Penaniah had children, but Hannah had none. Year after year, this man went up from his town to worship and sacrifice to the Lord Almighty at Shiloh, where Hophni and Phinehas, the two sons of Eli, were priests of the Lord. Whenever the day came for Elkanah to sacrifice, he would give portions of the meat to his wife Penaniah, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion because he loved her and the Lord had closed her womb. And because the Lord had closed her womb, her rival, who we'll call Penny, Penaniah, Peniah, Penny, kept provoking her in order to irritate her. This went on year after year. Whenever Hannah went up to the house of the Lord, her rival provoked her till she wept and would not eat. Elkanah, her husband, would say to her, Hannah, why are you weeping? Why don't you eat? Why are you downhearted? Don't I mean more to you than ten sons? Verse 9. Once when they had finished eating and drinking in Shiloh, Hannah stood up. Now Eli the priest was sitting on a chair by the doorpost of the Lord's temple. In bitterness of soul, 
Hannah wept much and prayed to the Lord. And she made a vow, saying, O Lord Almighty, if you will only look upon your servant's misery and remember me and not forget your servant, but give her a son, then I will give him to the Lord for all the days of his life, and no razor razor will ever be used on his head. As she kept on praying to the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was praying in her heart, and her lips were moving, but her voice was not heard. Eli thought she was drunk, and he said to her, How long will you keep on getting drunk? Get rid of the wine. Not so, my lord, Hannah replied. I am a woman who is deeply troubled. I have not been drinking wine or beer. I was pouring out my soul to the Lord. Do not take your servant for a wicked woman. I have been praying here out of my great anguish and grief. Eli answered, Go in peace, and may the God of Israel grant you what you have asked of him. She said, May your servant find favor in your eyes. Then she went her way and ate something, and her face was no longer downcast. Early the next morning, they arose and worshiped before the Lord, and then went back to their home at Ramah. Elkanah lay with Hannah, his wife, and the Lord remembered her. So in the course of time, Hannah conceived and gave birth to a son. She named him Samuel, saying, because I asked the Lord for him. 1 Samuel 1, 1 through 20. I love that. So, so powerful. We'll stop there for today because I really want to talk. The intention of practice four is I will overcome hurtful words when I pray through and stay with the process. In our study guide this week, we talk about the tale of two hearts, these 20 to 28 verses. And I ask you, after reading through 1 Samuel 1 and then reading through the beginning of the practice, to turn to page 75. And here on page 75, actually 74 and 75, I enter into a deeper study of what it means to be a mean person as opposed to a well-meaning person. Because at the beginning of this journey, when I went through this confrontation and this very uncomfortable spiritual tipping point where Angela spoke very hurtful words to my soul, to which came against my identity in Christ. They spoke against everything that I was. I couldn't decide and grapple with, is this just someone who's well-meaning? She's telling me these things to help me? Or is she just being mean? And I couldn't, I couldn't reconcile the difference. So I had to turn to the words within the words, and that's what we're doing today. And we're looking at the words inside of practice four, mean and well-meaning. So when we look back at this, you know, 
were not given much to work with. And I, I looked to theologians, to Bible commentators, to a handful of authors who had also tried to figure out this relationship between uh, Hannah and Penny. And I looked at it from all angles because I wanted to respect Penny's side of the story. Because there are always two sides to the story. And it's important to be open-minded in order to gain insights from the other person's perspective. Because remember, perception, that is our truth. How I perceive something is my truth. And in my family, how my husband's perception is his truth, my son's perception, my daughter and my two daughters, their truth is their truth. And I listened to some uh, thing the other day that talked about raising children, of course. And it was just saying, raising children, you know, you raise them in the same parents, but it's as if they each grew up in a different home. And that's because we all have different personalities, we all have different identities, and we have different ways of perceiving. And so it's very, very important to honor a person's perspective on a conversation or situation. I mean, it's critical. And you really cannot move through the healing journey until you give that other person the respect that is due. So in my own journey with Angela, I did that. I had conversations. I tried to see where she was coming from and where where am I coming from and how is she perceiving me and how am I perceiving her? And I really gave it a full, open-minded look from all angles. But this sometimes there's just contentious relationships. And this one between Elkanah's two wives, Hannah and Penny, it really did beg the, the very hard question, is this woman Penny well-meaning, or just plain mean. So I went and looked inside these two words. Well, mean is an adjective. They both are. Mean is being offensive, being selfish, or unaccommodating. So this is a good place to really have what you would call the tell. If If you can't discern between, is this person just being mean to me? Or is this person just being well-meaning, which sometimes includes just being ignorant and not really knowing what they're saying. But when we look at the word mean and I saw the word selfish and unaccommodating, it that spoke volumes to me. Because to be unaccommodating means it's my way or the highway. My truth is my truth and only my truth is my truth. I'm not even going to be willing to hear your side of the story and I'm not going to be willing to process through your side of the story. Mean also means small-minded, having narrow interest, sympathies, or outlook. And mean is marked by pettiness, narrowness, or meanness. So the definition is very insightful, and it gives us a deep insight into discerning whether someone's com- confronted, conf- someone's confrontation or harsh words or hurtful words 
Are they just ignorance? Are they well-meaning? Or are they just mean? So when you look at well-meaning, it means to have good intentions. So someone who has a good intention towards you is not going to be unaccommodating. They're going to be willing to hear your side with an open heart And they're going to be malleable. They're going to be flexible. They're going to to know that their way is not the highway. They're not going to be self-righteous. They're not going to be, oh, unaccommodating. I can't find another word at the moment. So when we think of having good intentions, we have to ask what is, a, what is an intention then? So an intention is an act or instance of determining mentally upon some action or result. So a well-meaning person is going to have good intentions, which means they're going to mentally, mentally have an instance of determining an action. So they're, they're, they're accommodating, which is just exactly the opposite. So I desperately tried to give Penny the benefit of the doubt. She didn't have it easy, right? Let's look at it from her perspective, her truth. She lived in the backdrop of Elkanah's deep, openly favored love for his first wife, Hannah. Well, that had to hurt. She bore the responsibility of taking care of Elkanah's children, while Hannah enjoyed less responsibility and a more pleasurable life because she was receiving the best of Elkanah, the best portions of him. That must have been frustrating for her. Finally, she lived in the role of runner-up. Hmm. Ever been there? In the words of race car driver Dale Earnhardt, he says, second place is first loser. Ouch. (laughs) But when it's all said and done, and you really sit... Oh, sorry about that. Hold on one minute. When you really sit with Penny in this situation, you you just can't sugarcoat her unhealthy, hurtful presence in Hannah's life. The evidence is clear. Because the Lord had closed Hannah's womb, her rival kept provoking her in order to irritate her. Little prods, little pushes, little digs, more little digs. Penny was Hannah's rival. It's plain and simple. She wasn't a nice person. None of us ever want to believe that someone is mean-spirited. We offer endless excuses for the mean behavior of others, sometimes at grave expense, desperately trying to believe the best. But there are mean people in this world who deliberately hurt with their words. Are we not seeing this on such a rampant course? Sometimes we play a part in the scenario, and I confess through overcoming hurtful words, I definitely played a role here. I let Angela speak to me the way she did. I was so desperate for approval and applause and affirmation that I was determined to make her like me and her approve me so that I could have a position in our church's life. Sometimes we're just relational casualties, but time after time, as I listen to similar stories as my own, 
I hear them speak through weary, worn-down whispers, and they say, I've been so hurt. Why is she so mean to me? I can't forgive her for what she did to me. Why me? How can she act that way and call herself a follower of Christ? I sit in disbelief because I just can't believe that these things are actually said, but they are. And over and over again, women share how they melt down under the mystery of mean women. What do we do then? All right, so that's why we're here. We're always here to offer solutions or at least give some time and attention to how we can move forward in maturity and overcome this mystery of mean women. What do we do, though, when we can't escape or hide or get away from our antagonist? I believe Hannah's response to Penny's relentless pounding shows us exactly how and why and what of praying through and staying with all the perplexing pain of hurtful words. Now, we are expanding this conversation beyond the borders of hurtful words in our conversations because these this methodology, the Heartlift Method, also relates to negative narratives that have been in our lives for decades, it, how we can handle relationship casualties uh, beyond Uh, close trusted people. It's how can we just move forward in life when hurtful things happen? So in the midst of her bruised and brokenness, Hannah had some important decisions. She could fight against Penny. She could. She could be catty right back. She could deliberately hurt, be hurtful in her own remarks. She could be spiteful. She could retaliate by verbally attacking Penny like Penny attacked her. And after all, an eye for an eye, right? She could play the blame game and blame Penny for everything and become a a victim. But we don't see Hannah becoming a victim here. We see her falling apart and coming apart at the seams and totally becoming unglued. But we don't see her playing a victim and we don't see her playing the blame game. She could gossip about Penny to all the other women in the community. She could mar her character with little slights. Oh, I've been there. I have put a slight in here or there at a conversation to try to make myself look better. She could create a dark shadow around Penny. Maybe she could wail and scream and plead that Elkana punish Penny for her mean words and actions. She could have even isolated herself and sunk into a deep, dark hole of despair. She could have ended it all. Hannah could have allowed a serious heart rift to hamper her life and her future. She could say to heck with it all and run away from her family, children, and community. But she didn't. She didn't. Oh, my goodness. How then did Hannah navigate and keep praying through and staying with the process? How and why did she stay? How did she refrain from retaliation? What did she know about loving others? What kept her from going absolutely crazy? That was my biggest question. How on, how in the heck, Hannah, did you keep going? Well, I found my answer because I, I, I walked in this chapter, 1 Samuel 1, I want to say a good four to five years. I am not kidding you. These 28 verses and the first few verses of chapter 2 were my lifeline. 
I kept at it until I got to a solution and I found it in 1 Samuel 1.10, which says it all. Hear it again. Hannah was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. Never before has that little conjunction, that three-letter word and, meant so much to me. Leave it out, and here's how the sentence reads. Hannah was deeply distressed. Hannah wept bitterly. Add it back, and voila. Hannah prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. She had two choices before her. One choice would leave her depressed and distressed and spiraling into a deep, deep, dark place. The other choice would lead her to overcome Penny's hurtful words. If Hannah stayed in the weeping state, please, I know someone hearing this is in the weeping state. I know your stories. I hear your stories. I honor your stories. They're in the vault of my heart. Her other choice would lead her to overcome. If she stayed in the weeping state, she would stay stuck in her heart rift. If she could find her way to the praying and staying state, she would rise above the pain of her antagonist and eventually experience the exhilarating, lasting freedom of a heart lift. When I was reading uh, through this and studying to write for the book, I came across uh, the spiritual director and and beautiful writer uh, about spiritual disciplines, the celebration of discipline, Richard Foster. And he calls a situation where we can appear out of our mind, like, you know, when Eli looked at her and praying and no words were coming out of her mouth in 1 Samuel 1.13, he thought she was drunk. You know, Sam, I mean, Eli thought she was out of her mind. And so Richard Foster calls this experience something called spiritual ecstasy. This never-ending struggle for her that went on for years and years left Hannah listless and stripped of self-sufficiency, and she became totally dependent on the God she knew and loved. Now, Dr. James' goal goes further with this spiritual ecstasy. And he says, to an outside observer, someone caught up in the realm of the spirit and taken to a rapturous place may appear drunk. The essence of this experience is to be overwhelmed by God's presence. Hannah, overwhelmed in the spirit, prayed through and stayed with her crisis until she got to the other side of it. I'm going to say that again because I'm pretty sure this is a word for you. Hannah, overwhelmed in the spirit, prayed through and stayed with her crisis until she got to the other side of it. She didn't let it ruin her. She let it raise her to a higher level of spiritual maturity. She didn't let it ruin her. She let it raise her. 
When I read those, oh my goodness, when I read these words, I closed my eyes and I prayed for a faith like Hannah's. She seemed to be so intimately acquainted and securely attached to her God. Their relationship reached way beyond the walls of a weekly worship service and deep into the hallowed hallways of her home. Hannah did not have Google apps to calm her nerves. She didn't have Siri to search for answers, and she didn't have weekly Bible studies and prayer meetings that we know of. We have no record of close companions who walked this journey with her. We're not privy to her journals. But at the end of the day, it was Hannah and her God. I want to close. There's so much more in this practice. But I feel like today, just to concentrate on not letting a crisis ruin us, but let it raise us to a higher level of spiritual maturity and intimacy with God. That was what Hannah did. Closing with these words by the the beautiful writer uh, Anne Lamott in Plan B, Further Thoughts on Faith, she says, There's a lovely Hasidic story of a rabbi who always told his people that if they studied the Torah, it would put scripture on their hearts. One of them asked, why on our hearts and not in them? The rabbi wisely answered, only God can put scripture inside, but reading sacred text can put it on your heart And then when your heart breaks, the holy words will fall inside. In the midst of Hannah's pain, holy words fell inside her heart. Perhaps this is why Hannah's journey resonated within my heart so deeply. She had nothing and no one but God to turn to. As we have said it, it was Hannah and her God, period. All creature comforts stripped away. Her only hope was that God would be true to his word. Much like Hannah, you and me, our heart-rifting journeys leave us with one place to turn, God and God alone. And alone can be a very scary place. But let's allow Hannah's courage to give us courage. Let my courage give you courage. I I walked through a very difficult situation with an antagonist year after year. And God finally released me. And we left that church. We left that relationship. I still think of her fondly. I love her. I'm grateful. That's the other side of the journey is being able to look back and go, I would never Be doing what I'm doing today and helping in the way that I can help had I not walked through that heart-rifting valley. And as we will read, (sighs) Hannah, her faith increased because she stayed with it. She prayed and she stayed with it. And at the end of the story is a very happy ending for San. Uh, Hannah, when she is given a son and his name is Samuel, because the Lord, she asked him, she asked the Lord for him. And as if you read on in, in chapter two and beyond, Samuel becomes a great prophet of God. 
And so I always, you know, my daughter wrote a beautiful song about this Hannah's journey. And she said, Hannah held in her heart what she couldn't hold in her hands. Let me repeat that. Hannah held in her heart what she couldn't hold in her hands. And she did that until she held her Samuel. So what are you holding in your heart that you're not holding in your hands right now? And you're being required by God to pray through and stay with that desire that's in your heart and not be ruined by it, but let it raise you to deeper spiritual maturity, to a higher walk and deeper intimacy with God. What is it today? that you're holding in your heart, that you're not yet holding in your hands, open your hands right now and let me pray. Father, I thank you for this time with my friends. I thank you that they have made their way to this episode and that they are hearing these words so filled with hope because Hannah's story is a hopeful story. She prayed through and stayed with a very painful process until you heart lifted her. Until you released the Kairos timing and said, now is the time, Hannah. I've done the work I've needed to do. I love you. And now I want you to hold what you've held in your heart, in your hands. And Samuel was a reality, a living reality. So what is your Samuel? I know what mine is. But I'm asking you today, what is your Samuel? May you pray through and stay with the process until you hold that Samuel in your hands. Have a good day, and I'll see you next time. Thanks for listening today. It was great having you here. For even more great content and conversation, please join the Speak Healing Words community at JanelleReardon.com.